Hey, folks, before we get to today's lovely, lovely show featuring the wonderful, wonderful Joe Lowry of MLS Assist talking all things Major League Soccer, specifically the MLS's back tournament and everything that has happened, I first wanted to let you know that you can save 40% off an athletic subscription. You can get all access to the Athletics' exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season and then the seasons to come afterwards, obviously. That subscription gets you unlimited access to breaking news, in-depth stories, and expert analysis. Right now, if you check out the soccer side of things over at The Athletic. You've got Meg Linehan discussing the takeaways on the success of the NWSL Challenge Cup. Congratulations again to Houston. But there's uh, David Ornstein on updates to the player lawsuit, players suing for hundreds of millions over the use of their statistics. You've got the article that uh, Joe will mention later on, this is in the future, uh, f- uh, by Jeff Ruder and Sam Stachel about sort of MLS's tentative plan for how they're going to resume. Uh, I asked Joe a little bit about that plan in the show, but obviously I could have just read the article and then I would have known for sure. Sign up now and see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash total soccer, you can receive 40% off an annual subscription. Sports are back and you won't want to miss the breaking stories on your favorite teams. Go to theathletic.com slash total soccer for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me today, but that's okay because we haven't talked about MLS's back very much on the show, mostly because uh, two other podcasts have been doing it so very well. Joining me today is the host of one of those shows. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. How are you? I am doing well. How are you doing, more importantly? I know what it's like to cover the ins and outs of a tournament. And <laughs> it starts off fun, and then it gets sort of tiring fairly quickly. Then you kind of rebound and get that second win. I'm wondering where you are in the process. We're on the up after the Valley. We, okay. we've, we made it through the group stage. I think we've done 20 daily shows so far through the month of July. Um, it's like three so seasons we're ne- of cereal right there, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> It's been a lot. It's been a lot. Um, Jordan Angeli and I have been working pretty hard, but we're coming out now. We're in in the period of the tournament where the games are a little bit more sporadic, and so we're getting to pour into those games a little bit more mm-hmm. as they get fewer and farther between. So, yes, I am doing well. Nice. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about those games still to come, about the teams that are still involved. We're obviously going to talk about some of the teams that are no longer involved. But first, just from a more general standpoint, I'm wondering how much you've enjoyed the tournament itself. There were questions about the quality of play early on. There were questions about the sponsorships. It seems like things have been smoothed out a little bit, at least with some of the teams. Do you have specific moments that you've particularly enjoyed more than others? This isn't a specific moment, but you mentioned quality of play there. I've enjoyed seeing the teams get more comfortable and get more in, not necessarily in soccer shape, but become more of who, who they are and, and their identities on the field over the course of the tournament. From the first set of group stage games until now, we've seen these teams grow a lot and the soccer's become increasingly more entertaining. Mm-hmm. And as from a, from a coronavirus perspective, as some of those cases have been contained and now there've been several consecutive reports of no positive cases in the bubble after a tumultuous beginning to this tournament. Yes, there are still questions around it, but that ethically, I think, has made it easier to stomach and has made covering this tournament and enjoying the soccer much more enjoyable. So whenever you're covering tournaments like this, especially when you're previewing them, as you all did, there tend to be, like, you can create some strong ideas. Daryl and I tend to do very specific predictions so that if we're wrong, we're not horrifically wrong, though my 
prediction that Fred would be the Golden Boot winner at a World Cup was uh, pretty miserably incorrect. <laughs> For you, in all the previewing you did, is there a, a, a team that you think you got more right than others? And, of course, is there a team that you think you got mostly wrong uh, with how they ended up performing in this competition? Oh boy. Well, I'll start with the second half. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I was super right on anyone, but I was very wrong on the Colorado Rapids. I'm sorry, Colorado fans. I talked with Daryl on the Total Soccer Show about how they were my team to watch in this tournament. (laughs) And I was so excited to watch what Robin Frazier was going to do. And then they more or less bombed, especially in that first game against RSL. A lot of mistakes did not look at all like how I hoped they would or how I thought they would. So yes, maybe, maybe Colorado, if we get more of an extended regular season after this tournament, we'll start to get back on the up again. But yeah, I was very wrong about them. And what about teams that have impressed you the most, either from what you thought they'd be doing or how they have sort of improved their quality of play or how they've adjusted to the tournament itself? Ooh, I've got two for that, if you'll permit me, Taylor. Please. Number one, Orlando City. Top of their group. Yeah. They ended this as the top of that first group. They've started to hold on to the ball more and keep possession, and Oscar Barea has done some really great things with the squad already, just, you know, five games into, or six games into his time there. That's one. FC Cincinnati is the other one. They get torn apart in their first game of the tournament against the Columbus crew, change some things defensively. They go away from a sort of pseudo-man-marking system to a zonal defensive scheme. Now they've been sitting back deeper, and they've been in every game. Yes, they lost to the Portland Timbers, and now they're out of the tournament. But that change under Yopstam has been has been incredible. When a team has as unsuccessful of a season as FC Cincinnati had, I think sometimes there can be this idea of like we're going to change it up, we're going to be much more attacking, and we're going to play this proactive soccer. Like, do you think the practicality in we're just going to be very defensive, we're going to bunker because that style allows us to be more successful than trying to maybe play a system we might not otherwise be able to play? Like, do you think that is an okay thing for teams to do if it allows them to be more competitive when they otherwise would not be capable of being so? One hundred percent. Jordan keeps talking about and telling me that when you come into a team and when you need to build something that that either hasn't been there or that has been there and it's been bad, you have to start and become solid defensively. Cincinnati have done that. They've become a pain to play against in that five, three, two, low, low, low defensive block. But then this is what surprised me as well. Under Jans, when they get the ball, they've been doing things with it. They had a 23 pass sequence that led to a shot against the Portland Timbers. They've been moving the ball in possession. Harris Madunian at the base of midfield. Their center backs playing out a little bit. The full back, or the wing backs rather. Frankie Amaya in midfield. All of these guys have been doing proactive things with the ball. That's been a surprising wrinkle that I haven't seen or didn't expect. But yes, Taylor, defensively, yeah, get pragmatic, get solid behind the ball, and stop giving up four goals in each game. That's a good thing, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to start there. And and forgive me, I should have checked this before we started. Uh, I've been following the allocation disorder, the stories of like when the league is going to resume and how that will go down. What is the latest there from what you understand in terms of the league restarting and what kind of play we'll have after the competition? Because I then want to ask about some of the teams and how they're going to change things for the resumption of the quote unquote regular season. It seems to me from what I've seen and read reported that there will be more soccer coming. Mm-hmm. Jeff Ruder and, and Stam Stagecall, I believe, reported for The Athletic that the league is working on finalizing some sort of after-tournament season. Stephen Goff of the Washington Post, I saw as well, more recently said that we should be hearing something about that sooner rather than later. So all signs that I, I can read, and again, I'm just reading, seem to be pointing to more soccer mm-hmm. after this tournament ends. So if we do have some sort of regular season resume, what do you think FC Cincinnati need to do? What do you think they should do to be able to maybe do what they're trying to do, but a little bit better to be able to stay a little bit more alive in the knockout round? Maybe adding in 
a defensive switch. So they've been sitting deeper in that low, low defensive block, and it's been working largely. But my question then is, is that sustainable? Can we see them do it game after game after game? Mentally, that's hard as a player. If you break down or if you lose focus for one moment, one of your 10 outfield defenders, there's a chance that you're going to get broken down and scored on. So maybe to give his players a little bit of a different look defensively and to give them a break almost defensively, we start seeing Ranyan's change we start seeing Yap Stam, rather. <laughs> Ron Yans is gone. We start seeing Yap Stam change, change that line of, con- thank you, Taylor, change that line of confrontation. And we see them press higher up the field just for moments, being very selective about when and how they press, but just to give their guys a little bit of a mental break defensively. Then they still keep the low block. They still keep the possession work, but you have that extra facet to their game. So that's what FC Cincinnati could do in the time between the tournament and the resumption of a regular season such as it is. But we do still have uh, Orlando City, whom you mentioned, uh, alive in the competition and playing very, very well. How has Oscar Pereja made this happen? Because <laughs> uh, I am inclined to give him the entirety of the credit. I think I read a Doyle article that was basically arguing it's a lot of Pereja and then it's also their star players performing well. You get those two together and they end up pretty good. Yeah, Doyle's right, as he often is, I think, on that one. Orlando City, probably number one, have the strongest roster, I think, in their history so far. They have genuine talent. They have star players, not just with Nani, but they have emerging talent with Chris Miller, and they have it with Pereira at the 10. Their uh, their double sixes in that four two three one are also very solid. So that's, that's part one. But part two, yeah, Oscar Pereira has come in. He's gotten buy-in from these guys that... Coming in after James O'Connor, who, who, at least from the outside, didn't seem to get that buy-in with some largely with a lot of unsuccessful games under James O'Connor. Perea comes in, he knows how he wants to play. He knows that he wants to play in that 4-2-3-1 with two sixes and a 10. Flexible fullbacks and wingers, especially when you have Nani, that's very important because he needs to find the game and let play develop around him sometimes as well. He's flexible in the possession scheme. He's encouraged them to pass the ball quickly, to play in and out of spaces, to move and rotate off the ball. All the things have come together so far for Orlando City under Oscar Perea. And who has been your favorite player for Orlando in terms of either just their fun to watch or what they're doing to facilitate Oscar Pereja's vision? This is a cheat. This is not answering your question, but I'm going to two guys on the right side. That's Chris Miller and it's Juan, the right back and, and right winger. I'll just phrase for now Orlando and I'll ask City. you who are the two. How about that? I'll just say <laughs> who are the two things. What are your two favorites? And we'll go with Perfect. that. Perfect. Yeah, because right, cool. I can never pick just one. It's That's impossible. Fair. That's fair. That's fair. But the way those two guys work on the right side for Orlando City is so fun to watch. If Muller's tucking inside every time you can count on Juan overlapping him down the outside, beating the opposing left back on the other side of the field for on the other side of the, the game, rather on the left side for the defensive team. You can count on those guys causing problems and occupying both of those vertical channels on the right half of the field. And it's fun to watch. All right, so Orlando, fun to watch. Uh, eliminate Montreal 1-0. They're into the quarterfinals against LAFC, who... I don't know if trounced is the right word, but they handed to Seattle a 4-1 to defeat there. That was a very hyped game. Obviously, that was the Western Conference Final, I believe, last season. Uh, or at least uh, Seattle knocked out L.A. last season. That was the opposite this time around. What did you make of that performance from L.A.? They were good, Taylor. They were very good. It was the LAFC that they can be. Earlier in this tournament, we saw them give up early goal after early goal after early goal. And it's been a decent amount of of static defending. And when they're stuck in that low block early in games, when the other team is pushing forward and starting aggressively, LAFC have really struggled to deal with that pressure because that's not their game. They want to extend higher up the field and press you high and counter press and have possession up the field and attack and transition when they can. Earlier in the tournament, they were still doing a lot of that, yes, because they were still very good, but they weren't doing as much of that as they could. And against Seattle, they started hot. 
They were moving the ball well. They weren't turning it over in bad positions that forced them to defend when they didn't want to. They were pressing up the field, attacking in transition, taking advantage of, taking advantage of sloppy mistakes from Seattle, and playing exactly how Bob Bradley wants this team to play. If you drill down on, on one of those or a few of those, two of those, if you want, like, <laughs> what would you say would was the difference in LAFC being able to jump out to that early lead against Seattle when they haven't been as effective, as you've said, uh, in their earlier games, in the earlier moments of those games? Bob Bradley highlighted it, highlighted it in a water break interview that I've, I've loved in this tournament, getting those bits of insight from coaches at the inter, intermissions of, of the halves. You get one in the first half and one in the second half most often. Bob Bradley, I believe it was against the Portland Timbers, said that early on in that game, his team was trying too many home run passes and was trying to force things that weren't there. And then they were losing the ball and their defensive structure after they lose the ball was scattered because they weren't in position to counterpress because they were turning the ball over when they weren't planning to. You never plan to turn the ball over, but sometimes you can plan for it better. If you're very so then, crafty, you do. You never know. Yeah, that's levels ahead. That's streets ahead right there. <laughs> um, so when when LAFC lost the ball in those moments, they were scattered and that hurt them, especially against the Timbers down their left side early on in the game. They let in a goal, not, you know, five, ten minutes into the first half. When when they're not doing that and they didn't do that against the Seattle Sounders, it's a totally different team and they're almost impossible to stop. Uh, stick with LAFC. I wanted to ask you about the the draw and dish, as I believe you've dubbed it, the, the oh, yes. Carlos Vela maneuver. Uh, first of all, what is that for people who are unaware? And second of all, who has been sort of performing that role in the absence of Carlos Vela, or have they just changed things up in, uh, due to him not being there? The draw and dish is going mainstream, first of all. But to to explain <laughs> what it is, I, I coined this on MLS Assist. It's when Carlos Vela has the ball, usually on the right wing. And defenders just flock to him. One, two, three guys come and try to take it from him, or at least close him down to limit what he can do on the ball. But when those defenders move, that opens up space in other places. And Carlos Vela will let them come in, and then at the last second, he'll slip the ball right by them to a teammate in space to create something. A chance, a shot, you know, a pass before a pass, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. He uses that as a great way to create chances for his teammates. With LAFC, they still have guys that can do that. Their attacking players still draw defenders. Brian Rodriguez, Diego Rossi, those guys are hard to stop, and they will naturally draw players into them and create space elsewhere. I haven't noticed that specific thing from either one of those guys, but LAFC, as a greater point, are just fine without Carlos Vela. He's important to their team, and, and Bob Bradley would say that, and he's important to the, the structure of the team and the, the locker room, that culture. But for an on-field perspective, there's not a huge dip after Carlos Vela not being with this team in Orlando. So we've talked a decent amount about both Orlando and LAFC. Uh, is that the knockout round or the quarterfinal game that you are looking forward to the most? Or is there another uh, fixture that you think will be equally compelling or more compelling? Oh, boy. I'm excited for that one a lot. I'm also really looking forward to Minnesota United versus mm-hmm. the Earthquakes as a, a real clash of style there. But all the matchups are going to be fun in their own unique way, I guess. Let's talk San Jose Minnesota then for a moment. Let's start with San Jose who eliminate Real Salt Lake uh, 5-2. Uh, and that scoreline is sort of where I want to go with it because in my mind, I do not mean this to be disrespectful. I still sort of think of San Jose being here as a little bit of a fluke. And I think that's probably rooted in the game against Vancouver. It's rooted in the sort of collapse at the end of last season. And then it in that game against RSL, I see them scoring goals and looking very competent in the attack. But simultaneously, there are moments when RSL are just able to play through them very, very quickly and find the back of the net. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts as to, number one, how legit is the San Jose team? And number two, why are there those moments when they do seem so defensively frail? So San Jose is, is almost designed to look like a fluke. I think that's how Mateo Salmeida wants his team to play. He wants to have them be crazy and have 
then be weird to watch, but also entertaining and have lots of goals going both directions. That's what happens when you play the man marking system and, and you play and you uh, aggressively defend and you attack aggressively as well. I think, I think they're legit, Taylor. I'm not entirely sure about that. I, I don't know. I don't think we can take that from this tournament one way or the other. But either way, their attacking talent is really, really good. That's something that you can transfer out of Orlando. Christian Espinosa on the right side. Vaco on the left side. They have Wando coming off the bench up top. They have Erickson playing as that attacking midfielder who's had some really nice moments in this tournament. Rios, Fierro, Salinas coming off the bench. They have attacking talent, and we've seen it shine through in this tournament over and over and over again, especially Espinosa on that right side. One of the best right-wingers in this tournament, for sure. Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Hims, a new wellness brand for men. Hims asks what's a common issue men face but don't always want to talk about, and they invite you to think long and hard about that question. That's their way of saying that 40% of men by age 40 struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection. It can be embarrassing. It shouldn't be, but it can be, and that leads people to pursue very strange remedies as opposed to, you know, science. That would be a good one to pursue. Hims connects you with real licensed doctors and FDA-approved pharmaceutical products to treat erectile dysfunction. They offer well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you combat ED. All you need to do is answer questions about your medical history. You chat with a doctor for a confidential review. If approved, the products are shipped directly to your door. You can try Hims today by starting out with a free online visit. Go to forhims.com slash totalsoccered. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash totalsoccered. Forhims.com slash totalsoccered. Prescription products are subject to medical provider approval and require an online consultation with a medical provider who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. See website for full details and safety information. This could cost hundreds if you went in person to the doctor's office or a pharmacy, so you don't have to do that. Instead, go to forhims.com slash totalsoccered. First, I want to say, Joe, that you've made me feel, not intentionally, I'm sure, but I've never felt older than I do right now, because I feel like you're sort of talking about San Jose as though they're this sort of punk rock soccer team. And I guess <laughs> that puts me in the, I don't know, in the 50s business suit, being annoyed that these, these youngsters today are, are doing their own thing. I feel, I feel like the older generation, because perhaps I am. But yeah, so let's stick with San Jose then. If they're not a fluke, Joe, uh, let's talk about Espinosa maybe. What is it that you enjoy so much about him? Well, and first of all, Taylor, I think you'd look good in a business suit. But moving past that, Espinosa <laughs> on that right wing. consistently wearing the opposite of that when I work from home. But, uh, <laughs> Who but can maybe, blame you? Maybe that's I the way to go can blame you suit. for that. <laughs> Espinosa on that right wing, really Please. good right foot. Mm -hmm. Definitely an asset in a number of different areas. First is his ability to help the earthquakes build out. He can come back to the ball hard if the earthquakes have the ball on their right side and are trying to play out from the back. He can come back and play with his back to goal and play against the opposing left back and drag them out of position, lay the ball off then to to Tommy Thompson coming out from right back or or to a central midfielder. Maybe it's Jackson Yule coming over towards that ball side. Espinosa can help with those moments. And then in transition, especially in transition, he's lethal. He can take the ball and beat you on the dribble. He can beat you for pace. He can beat you out wide. He can cut inside and draw defenders that way. Espinosa, we talked about the draw and dish. Espinosa is that guy for me who's done that the best and Carlos Vela's absence, which essentially just means he commands a pre he has a commanding presence out on that right side because defenders want to come to him. And then at that point, it leaves space for Vaco and for Ericsson and for the number nine for the earthquakes over and over and over again. And as you said, the Quakes will be facing Minnesota United. What have you enjoyed from them in terms of their tactical approach to this competition? And how do you think they will deal with San Jose? I love the, this isn't tactical, but I love Adrian Heath's commitment to driving the narrative that no one respects them and no one appreciates them and no one ever thinks they have a chance in any game. He does it's super entertaining. That. Yeah. 
he hits that home over and over and over again, but it fits with how they play. And I think he's got a grounds for it because they don't play this. I mean, they just beat the Columbus crew and that was a real clash of styles. The crew wanted to have the ball and to keep possession and to break them down. And Minnesota United said, no, we're going to sit in a, a 4-2-3-1, a 4-4-2, a 4-4-1-1 defensive block, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to clog the midfield and make it so you cannot break us down. That's what Minnesota United do. They sit deeper in their half. They win the ball. They transition. They get goals on set pieces. They get chances on set pieces. And it works for them. They've they've done extremely well in this competition. I think their style lends itself well to a tournament setting where possession teams have really small margins for error and all it takes is one counterattack and that's it's game, maybe 1-0. Minnesota United, though, are really good playing how Adrian Heath wants them to. Kevin Molino, now we haven't seen him as much as the tournament has gone on, but he was great at the start of this tournament. Hassani Dotson, a younger American guy in the in the Olympic player pool, defensively has done a good job for them near the top of their defensive shape, pressuring opposing midfielders. Minnesota United is hard to beat, and they're a legit threat to win this thing. So for people who uh, maybe have only been watching passively, haven't yet gotten to enjoy both of these teams, what are some sort of battles that you're going to be looking forward to, Joe? What are the matchups that you think could be most compelling? The matchup for me in this game is between Minnesota United center backs and San Jose's man-marking scheme, which is not at all kind of how I framed these two teams leading up to this, but the big weakness in San Jose's defensive shape, and this is a, a structural systemic weakness that they have on purpose, is they don't mark one of the opposing center backs. One of those guys is always open. In this case, it'll be Minnesota United. So it'll be Boxall or it'll be AHA without Ikopara for this team in Orlando. One of those guys is always open so that the Quakes can have a free center back and their defensive end. That way, they'll try to have more cover down there and there's a little bit more margin for error defensively. But Minnesota United have been the team of all the teams in MLS who have exposed that weakness for the Quakes more than any other squad. They beat San Jose earlier this year 5-2, to two, and their center backs were a big part of that. They beat San Jose 3-0 last year with uh, with Igopara and Boxell being big offensive playmakers for them. So if if Minnesota United, yes, without Igopara, again, if Minnesota can do something with their center backs and charge forward being unmarked, that literally means there's no one around them. They can stride forward into space and make life miserable for the Quakes defensively. If they're willing to do that, RSL did that and scored. Um, a team earlier in this tournament did that as well. I think it was Vancouver earlier on in the group stage. If Minnesota United can have their center backs be playmakers, the Earthquakes could be in trouble. If it doesn't happen, then San Jose has a real shot in this one as well. I always enjoy the like uh, keys to the game thing that you'll usually get in the beginning of a broadcast. And I like that Joe's key to the game is, can the center backs do something? I think that's a great <laughs> one to keep an eye on. And I know it's a nice ring to it. I just like that phrasing a lot. Yep, I'm with you. <laughs> um, so we've previewed one side of the bracket. Let's move to the other. Let's go to NYCFC v. Portland. Uh, we're going to save the first game happening for last because logic. Uh, I mentioned Matt Doyle earlier. I read his column in which he sort of argued that both of these teams are capable of sitting and trying to play on the counter. Which Do you agree with that, first of all? And if so, which team do you think is more likely to change up that approach in this game? I think I agree with that. The Timbers, I definitely agree with that. They're very comfortable sitting deep and attacking in transition. NYCFC, though I still think their DNA is keeping the ball. Against Toronto, they they showed their ability to get out in transition and be a threat in that way. And it worked for them after they went up one nothing early on. So I think Matt is right. His general point there is correct that both teams can play in transition. But I think in this one, it's likely to be NYCFC reverting to what we've seen from them over and over again over the past few years, and at the beginning of Ronnie Dyla's tenure as well, where they want to keep the ball, they want to work it in possession, 
and break teams down, rotate in and out of spaces and, and move the ball forward between the lines. They haven't been very good at that in this tournament, but that's their core still, I think, even under Ronnie Dyla. So I'm guessing that we're going to see, and of course this probably means that it's not at all what we're going to see, but I think the way this game is going to flow is the Timbers sitting back a little bit deeper in a 4-4-2 block with Valeri and Abobasi up top. Then they're trying to win the ball off of NYCFC's possession and transition forward with their their front four of Blanco, Jimmy Chara, Valeri, and Abobasi. You mentioned NYCFC haven't been as good at as moving that ball as quickly as they want and switching it as much as they want. Why, why do you think that is? What is sort of holding them up there? They, they've been missing Maxi Morales for parts of this tournament, and that's, that's huge. He came off the bench against Toronto after an early injury, I believe, to Tajiri Shradi in this tournament. And so he's, he has played roles here and there, and when he's been on the field, he's obviously very, very good. But they've been missing him for stretches, and they've been, they've been tinkering with a little bit in their possession. They've changed their formation under Ronnie Dyla a couple of different times, and it hasn't worked. They tried a three at the back shape earlier in this tournament. It didn't work. It quickly changed into a 4-4-2. That didn't really work either. And so I think we're just seeing NYCFC work through some things as far as how they want to play and what their spacing needs to be. And that has hurt them at times in this tournament. And then it also, again, it hurts when you're missing your star number 10. How much has James Sands played a role and what have you made of his emergence? James Sands has been good. He's played a big role for this team in keeping them competitive in games. When when uh, I've talked about him in the past on MLS Assist or on you know wherever else it's been, defensively he is a stud that is where his game stands out I feel like so often I and and others focus on the offensive side of things and what teams look like when they have the ball and what players can do with the ball James Sands defensively is a superstar he can step in and win the ball on counter pressing he can win 1v1 battles and not let the opposing number 10 turn as that defensive midfielder or he can slide back to center back and position himself to even stop attacks before they start so he's been really really good without the ball for NYCFC when you talk about a young American who could be a potential superstar playing for NYCFC, I would have maybe a season or two ago put all of my money on that player being Keaton Parks, who is now not starting in place of James Sands. Uh, is that because of something Keaton Parks has done? Is it because James Sands just kind of fits the model of what Dyla wants more than Keaton Parks? Or is it something else entirely? I don't know. I think I think Parks and Sands play a different role for NYCFC. Sands is more of the center back defensive midfield hybrid. Keaton Parks is more of an 8-10 hybrid. And he's he's just not been in the lineup. It's been Alexander Ring mostly playing as that either number six or number eight. It's been Morales when he's healthy and then Sands if he's in midfield as well. They're just for some reason, he hasn't been able to work his way into that midfield as the shape has been changing for Ronnie Dyla. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe he's just kind of the second choice guy at a number of different spots. But I love Keaton Parks. I still think he's a very good player. And if I was in charge of NYCFC, which will never happen, almost certainly, but hey, the idea of the, hey, you're right, Taylor. Thank you. The idea of getting a guy who can play make on the ball and his silky smooth in possession and can receive on the half turn and burst forward through lines and pass the ball. I like all of those things. So I don't know what's missing from Keaton Parks. I don't know what Ronnie Dyla is waiting to see or why he's not in the lineup. But don't give up hope. I think Keaton Parks is still a very good player, at least a very good MLS player. And at some point, I would expect him to see. I would expect to see him back on the field making plays for New York City. So we think both of them could feature for the U.S. men's national team at some point down the road. Uh, for Portland, Jeremy Bobasi is still very much in that conversation. Uh, have you seen things from his game in this competition that you think Greg Borhalter is also watching and sort of nodding along and taking notes about? Oh, yeah. Bobasi is a, a super versatile attacker. He's best. I, I think he's best as a number nine. But in the past, he's played on both wings. He's good with both feet. He scored, uh, they, they said this on the broadcast, he's almost got the cycle of goals. He's got a left-footed goal, a right-footed goal, and a headed goal. 
And that's a very small sample size, but I think it speaks to his game very well. I've watched him in the past and had had trouble, maybe I'm exposing myself here, have had trouble figuring out what his dominant foot is as a player. And that is either, yeah, taking shots at myself here and means that I'm bad at watching soccer sometimes, or just saying that Ibobasi is a well-rounded guy. And that's something that Greg Berhalter is here for. He likes that number nine who can drop into midfield can and lay the ball off or can get higher up the field, move center backs out of the way, get the ball in the box and finish. Abobasi fits all of those things. He fits the criteria. We've only seen him, at least to my recollection, we've seen him one time on the left wing in Berhalter's first start for the national team. Other than that, we've seen him with the U23s. But I, I am certain that Greg Berhalter is watching Abobasi and figuring out ways that he could fit as a number nine option for the U.S., where would you have him, uh, you personally, in the depth chart right now in terms of your national team strikers? Probably you've got Josie, and then Zardes has been very good in this tournament. I mean, it's it's Josie number one for me, and then maybe Abobasi, Zardes, and Sergeant number four, but I'd be willing to flip-flop Zardes and Abobasi. I thought, you, I thought you were saying all of them were tied. <laughs> They're oh, yeah, all there was a four-way two tie. Through four. four-way tie. Yep. <laughs> I'm changing my answer to that. That's a bit of a dodge, but I like it, Joe. I like it. Um, <laughs> the final quarterfinal, uh, not final part of the show. We've got lots more to discuss, but I want to talk Philly Sporting KC. Let's go with Philly for a moment. Uh, do you feel that they are performing very well, or do you feel like they are struggling to create chances or some combination of the two? They've had moments, especially in transition, where they've been lethal, um, with Montero and Aronson especially getting out and Shabelko up top finishing plays off. Overall, though, I think they've struggled in this tournament. I don't think they've been the best version of the union that we've seen in the past. I don't think they've created chances. Like, you specifically called that out in the question. I think that's very wise. I don't think they've been very dangerous with the ball. A lot of that, I think, comes down to Brendan Aronson. We've hyped this guy up, and he has so many good things about his game. I don't want to overlook that. He's great defensively. He's got a good motor He's willing to move without the ball, maybe not always smartest with how he moves. I'm waiting for the butt to come here. But you time that is. perfectly, Taylor. But <laughs> he's not he's not a prototypical attacking midfielder with his final pass. So often he'll receive the ball and he'll play it backwards or he'll play it to the side. Yes, there are moments when you need that and you need that to keep the possession alive. But Aronson is too reticent to play the final ball. Jim Curtin's talked about this before, so it's not like I'm exposing him here and no one's ever heard this criticism of him before. But he doesn't move the ball forward in a way that helps the Union create tons of chances in their 4-4-2 diamond. That is the area of growth that we need to see from Aronson to allow him to be a real contributor once he moves to Europe, because that is going to happen at some point. So that seems like a sort of like thing that maybe Christian Pulisic struggled with a little bit early on at Chelsea. And it seems yeah. as though Frank Lampard I almost gave him license to just try stuff, go at people. It doesn't really <laughs> yeah. matter if we retain the ball. I just want you to create. Like, is that almost what you think Brendan Aronson needs to hear? That like, it's not a big deal if you lose the ball. I'd rather you try some stuff than keep playing it safe. Why not? Right. Give him that confidence. And I, I don't know. Maybe Jim Curtin is doing that. And we're just waiting to see the results. But give Thank him you. that confidence and say, hey, feed our front two. Try that through ball. If it doesn't work, that's okay. We're a defensive team. We're going to press and win it back. That mental shift or that, that confidence given to him by Jim Curtin, if that's something that he hasn't done or even if he has done it, that's a great, that's a great bit of advice, Taylor. I think that's the perfect thing to tell Aronson right now. All right. So if, if he tells him that and Aronson does sort of pick it up a little bit, I know you're not trying to put it all on him, nor do I think the blame is on him because, again, Philly are doing very well and are still alive in the competition. But is that enough if suddenly Aronson is kind of threading those passes and finding those options? Or do they need a diversity of attacking play? Are there other things Philly can do? Or if you see Brendan Aronson kind of threading those balls, do you have a good feeling about them advancing to the next round? 
I've got a good feeling about them advancing to the next round if that happens. Another thing that I think the union, I feel bad. I'm not trying to pick on the union here, but I'm thinking about how they could make the jump to the next level. And that's Montero on the ball. He plays as the, usually the left sided number eight and that diamond as that, that shuttler on the left side of midfield. He holds onto the ball a lot. Sometimes that helps the union get out of tight spots, but other times it hurts their attacking rhythm. And when they don't always have the ball for tons of the game in possession, that can really slow attacks down and hurt them. But setting that criticism aside, if the Union, especially against Sporting Kansas City, can get... That's who they're playing, right, Taylor? I've got the games all jumbled in my head. Yes, you got it. Okay, thank you. If they're playing Sporting Kansas City and and playing without the ball for large stretches of this game, that's almost what they want. They want to be able to attack in transition and get their young guns out moving forward, dangerously vertically moving the ball aggressively forward. And against Sporting Kansas City, that's a perfect matchup for them to do that because Peter Vermees always likes to keep the ball in that 4-3-3. I agree with everything you said. That was a very helpful answer. I must admit, I am still sort of obsessed with the idea of titling this show Why Joe Hates the Philadelphia Union, <laughs> just to see how that goes. I don't think I will, but if people are listening, I guess they'll know for sure. Uh, Fair enough. Maybe if uh, Philly win, Sporting KC head coach Peter Vermees will dislike them uh, for doing so. <laughs> uh, he, from what, from my understanding and from what I've seen, has been able to get the best out, out of Alan Polito. Uh, how has he gone about doing that? What is the role that Polito is playing? And is that like the, I think, ideal that you would like to see from Sporting KC in the way that they're setting up. I'm going to throw this back to you a little bit because I have a, a Liverpool-related question off of this mm-hmm. because I don't want to make that comparison needlessly. But how Peter Vermees is using Alan Polito is as almost just a straight-up between-the-lines playmaker. He'll drop between the, oppo- the opposition's defensive and midfield lines into that space, moving horizontally across that entire horizontal channel. And he'll get on the ball, and one of the midfielders or one of the wingers for Sporting Kansas City will fill that central attacking striker spot. And that's their shape in possession. Polito gets on the ball, play makes, draws defenders in, plays the ball over the top or, or, or switches possession, switches the, the point of attack. And he'll sit in that space for much of the game. Isn't that something that Roberto Firmino does for yes. Liverpool? Okay, yeah, I that, assume that's I where figured. we're going with this. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's that I think role. Yeah, that's a, that's, a really good, that's a really good way of understanding it because it's also easy to... Think of a center forward and just think like, well, they should be scoring a goal every single game. Otherwise, they're not doing their job. But if they're sort of creating the opportunities and creating the space and drawing defenders away from that space for other people to score, then they're sort of being as effective as scoring the goals themselves. So I like I like that analogy a lot. My question then is, and I think I don't know if you can answer this, but it, it's a thing that I'm always interested in is like when. Peter Vermees is drawing up his attacking plan or when he's thinking about his attacking plan. How do you think you scout for something like that when it comes to the player you're looking for? Like, do you think you do look for teams that kind of play that similar style and who's doing the best at it? Do you think that is that just something that Alan Polito himself does naturally? Or do you think it is Peter Vermees saw a couple qualities there and then sort of thinks, I'm going to get that guy, I'm going to round that out, and then we're going to have this efficient system? There's got to be, and this is a question that could definitely be answered by analytics people or people who are just smarter than me, um, but I think there's a definite player profile that you can look for. You can look for central attacking players that end up getting a lot of, of touches on the ball or key passes, passes that lead directly to a shot, or even secondary passes. You've got to be able to look for the pass before the pass that can tell you how much a, a striker or an attacking midfielder is contributing in that space beneath or, or deeper than the opposing center backs. You've got to be able to find a filter for that and make it a player profile that you specifically look for. In Polito's case, though, for for Chivas, I believe, he was playing both as a number nine and as just a straight-up attacking midfielder or a second forward. 
So when you watch that film, I'm sure Peter Vermees and SKC could see that, could see those tendencies and think about how they would structure their attack in light of those tendencies. Hey friends, this is Taylor jumping in for one quick moment to let you know that this show is obviously supported by The Athletic, but you could support The Athletic if you so choose. If you want your company to be one that I interject in the middle of an interview to discuss at length, then you can go to uh, theathletic.com slash podcast ads, all one word there, a link will be in the show notes, uh, and you can pursue advertising opportunities if you so choose. Those could be national or those could be local. The Athletic has many different podcasts that focus on local teams. Uh, in a variety of different leagues, so you could advertise that way or on a national level. Uh, to advertise on this very show, you could go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads. One more time, that's theathletic.com slash podcast ads. You fill out a very simple form. They will get back to you right away very, very quickly, very, very simple. And you support the show. You support other shows. You support The Athletic. It's all quite good. You support your business as well. So thank you to The Athletic for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you to you listeners who might reach out to them. Uh, And on that note, let's get back to Joe. One more question about this game in particular, then. What are some things, one for Philly, one for Sporting KC, or two? I know know you like your multiples. Uh, What are some things that when you're watching this game... I, I do love this type of question. I ask it a lot because it is a thing that I think is useful. What are some things that you think if we see Philadelphia doing, we can rest assured that they are executing the game plan that they want to be executing and playing very, very well? And simultaneously, what would that be for Sporting KC? What are some signs that things are sort of going to plan for each team? If the Union recover the ball deep after Sporting Kansas City have been in possession, if they recover the ball and break through the counter press. That will mean, I think, they, that they have done a good job and have a good chance of winning this game. Mm-hmm. Sporting Kansas City want to smother the ball, as, as every good possession team sort of has to do. Kansas City want to press the ball hard after they lose it in the attacking half. If the Union can either play over that pressure or can play through it, they're going to be really hard to stop in transition because I still think that's where they're best when they have the ball is in those transition moments. For Sporting Kansas City, Alan Polito, we just talked about him. If he can find those spaces between the lines, if he can either pull a center back out of position and have a runner, maybe it's Gaddy Kinda from midfield, break in behind that back line and have, have Ilya play the ball over the top into that space for Kinda making that late run through midfield. If they can do that or just get Alan Polito on the ball between the lines and have him not pressured by a center back, but just have him receive the ball in that space, turn, spray it to the side, spray it forward, do whatever he wants with the ball at that point, maybe take a shot. He can do all of those things. So if Sporting Kansas City can effectively use Alan Polito to break the union's set defense, that will mean that they're probably doing something right and they've got a shot to win this game. So it's basically if Polito scores or assists, we know he was involved. And then if he is out of the frame or like 20 yards away and not involved at all, then we also know he was still involved because he's probably <laughs> yeah. making that movement intentionally. He's, yeah, you've, you've created an impossible situation for the there union. So maybe it's you who hate, who hate the union, Taylor. <laughs> well flipped, sir. Well flipped. Uh, so those are, the, those are the eight teams still alive. Obviously, there are many teams who are not. Of the teams that have been eliminated, we've talked about uh, Colorado, Colorado already. Are there other teams that you sort of expected more from or you felt like we just didn't see the best out of? Oh, man. An easy answer here is Atlanta United. But mm-hmm. they're, they're I'm not sure they fit this question because they really struggled with replacing Joseph Martinez, and they've struggled under Frank DeBoer for large stretches. They've also been very good under Frank DeBoer. I don't want to take that away. But then we see all the aftermath of of DeBoer getting fired, and we can look at it in hindsight now and say, yeah, they didn't perform how they needed to in this tournament. Um, that might be a little harsh because they, they're struggling anyway. 
But Atlanta United, very poor. They had little defensive structure after they lost the ball. They couldn't move the ball effectively in possession. I guess Atlanta United had enough because Frank DeBoer now is gone. They've got the coach coming up from Atlanta United 2 from their USL team to, to be the interim guy, and they're looking for a permanent replacement for Frank DeBoer. Atlanta United have a lot of work to do going forward. Man, it's, it's such a strange thing to say about a team that have been so consistently good as they have. But yeah, I guess when you when you have the philosophy and the style, you probably want to stick with it. You also probably do want Joseph Martinez healthy and ready to go. I'm going to assume that's a big part of that. that what about, help, yeah. let's say, Toronto for a moment? From uh, what I saw of their match against NYCFC, I thought Michael Bradley looked a little rough. I thought he looked a little bit errant in his passing, and he didn't look as competent or confident on the ball as he has been at times in the past. How much of that is the vulnerability of Toronto FC in terms of the options that he has around him? Or I guess maybe first off, do you agree that he didn't have his strongest performance or am I being a little bit unfair? And second of all, if you think he did, what do you think accounts for that? I'm with you, Taylor. He did not have a very good performance against NYCFC and and really showed a lot of his weaknesses. Defensively, he's vulnerable. He gets in that, I think you guys coined this term on TSS, he gets in that Bradley crouch yep. and, and gets low, but then he just doesn't have the mobility or the explosiveness to push off and keep with a defender, and he gets beaten. He can be beaten 1v1 or 2v1 in that defensive midfield space. Then if his passing isn't clean with that defensive struggle, then you've got a problem. I think more credit should go to NYCFC for how they pinned Toronto FC in especially in the early part of that game. But overall, we're seeing Michael Bradley become more and more of a vulnerability, of a liability in that midfield than an asset. Um, and that's, that's inevitable, right? We've, we've known that's coming. He's getting older. He's becoming less effective naturally over time. A bigger problem for Toronto, though, I think is the, the overall lack of mobility in their spine. When let's just say it's Josie Altador up top, even though we haven't seen him a lot in this tournament, it's mostly been Ayo Akinola, who I hope I hope we'll get to talk about at some point because he's been very good. Um, but Josie Altador up top, not super mobile. Pozuelo up top, not super mobile, although he has shown willingness to press. Then you move back a line in the center of the field, and you've got Michael Bradley standing next to usually it's Marky Delgado. Delgado has the leg still, but Bradley doesn't really. You move back one more line, and you're looking at Omar Gonzalez who has no legs left to give. He's given it all on the field over his career. He's, he's, not, he's not a strength defensively. He hurts them defensively. And then you've got either Saman or Chris Mavinga at left center back. Mavinga is a little bit more mobile. Saman is, is really not at this point. You've got four of six players, at least, in that spine for Toronto who struggled to move and just struggled to keep up defensively. That hurts them. That hurts them a lot under Greg Vanny, and it makes their quality possession work secondary to how they struggle to chase the ball. Uh, I have to ask the the homer in me uh, wants me to ask about DC United before we talk about Ayo Akinola. Uh, is it? Did you see anything from DC in this competition that you thought will transition over to when we get the resumption of a regular season, uh, or do you think DC United are in a little bit of trouble? I saw something from them that I think will transfer in that we're probably going to see the same DC United after the season after this tournament ends rather. That yeah. we saw in Orlando. So that's not, I know that's not the answer you yeah. wanted. <laughs> it's, it's hard to find the positives other than the players that they brought in this offseason. We didn't mm-hmm. see a ton of Edson Flores in this tournament. Julian Gressel tried to do some things on the right wing, put in some nice crosses as he often does. But there's a lot of problems with this team. They moved one positive, I guess. I'll find one positive. Ben Olsen moved Russell Knauss from right back into midfield again. That's big. Russell Knauss, he got that January camp call up under Burhalter for that first camp back in 2019. He was good then, and he's still good now. 
He can cover ground in midfield, make tackles, get the ball forward quickly in transition. He can do things in midfield, and that's helpful for D.C. to get his presence back in the middle of the field. It's almost a Tyler Adams debate. Do you want your best defensive midfield player on the side of the field, or do you want them in the middle? And for D.C. United, it's clear. Get him in the middle, have him breaking up attacks, and getting the ball forward. To Flores, to Kamara, to Gressel. Then you've got something cooking. We just haven't seen it for D.C. So to to flesh that out, so we will, it's Tyler Adams central, Russell Canals central, Tommy Thompson right back. Is that Perfect. where we are? Perfect. That's where we're at right now. I Taylor. did not expect to be here. <laughs> I have <laughs> what to a, admit, what a trip. Uh, let's let's talk Aok and Yolo or anybody else you want to talk about with this one. I'm wondering who are some like fringe U.S. men's national team players, like maybe one or two January camps, or have never been caught up to the senior team. Maybe they played for a youth team. Maybe they've never been caught up at all. Uh, but who are some of those types of players that have impressed you in this tournament? Um, I'm going to assume Aok and Yolo will be on that list somewhere. Yes, definitely on the list. We've talked about two of them already. James Sands talked about how good he is defensively. One nitpicky thing for him. Well, actually, this is kind of big, not really nitpicky. He's he's uh, not interested in passing the ball forward aggressively, which I think in modern soccer is kind of a problem. But maybe he can sort that out and you can give him the same pep talk that you gave Brendan Aronson a few minutes ago. That's one. Then we've also talked about Abobasi as well. Three goals in four games, skilled with both feet, can can get up. He's got hops, Taylor. He can jump in the box and become a reliable outlet and, and service option in the box. Setting those two guys aside, though. Akinola, like five goals in three games. Really good with his movement behind the back line. He can, he can let another teammate get the ball in central midfield or out wide, and he'll, he'll faint back into midfield, and then he'll burst in behind the back line to beat the offside trap and to get the ball in space and get shots. That movement, that pattern that we've seen from him is something that he can do over and over again. And it's really hard to stop for opposing teams because, especially when you're playing in a team with Josie Altador and Alejandro Pozuelo, both guys who like to have the ball deeper in midfield, if you've got an outlet bursting centrally behind the back line, that gives your attack, that gives Greg Vanney's attack a whole nother layer of versatility to beat teams with. Uh, any other young Americans or fringe Americans that you wanted to mention? Uh, yeah, I've got two, two more. Frankie Amaya for FC Cincinnati, really aggressive defensively. He gets down and, and dirty, moving in midfield to, to steal the ball and to pressure the ball for SC Cincinnati. And he's able to play quickly in possession. He gets the ball and moves it forward quickly. He's been a key cog for Cincinnati's on-ball work when they do have the ball. And then one more guy who I think deserves a mention that I want to see more of for Houston, Memo Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Two goals against LAFC for the Dynamo. I believe that was their first game of the tournament when they drew LAFC 3-3. Matt Doyle highlighted this well, highlighted this well in a video that he had for MLSsoccer.com. His late arriving run into the box, I believe it was for his second goal against LAFC, is a repeatable skill that we can see from a central midfielder bursting forward out of midfield, getting on a ball. He's unmarked because the, the defenders for LAFC or for any team that the Dynamo are playing are dealing with the attacking players, the forward line. So then you have a midfielder like Memo Rodriguez burst into that space behind the line, get on the ball and at least get a shot. That's something that you can see over and over again, and that adds a lot of, of benefits to the Dynamo's attack under Top Ramos. So just a guy to keep my eye on. I'm not sure if he's quite U.S. men's national team level, but we've had guys come into the fold before who maybe Rodriguez has outperformed in this competition. So who knows? So that's Memo Rodriguez. In terms of Frankie Amaya, this is sort of a joke, but it's also a sort of a serious question, so take it however you want. But is Amaya the new player that we're going to get articles about, about how the Super Draft still matters, uh, since Amaya <laughs> goes number one and is now a key performer for FC Cincinnati? Genuinely, yes. The answer is okay. yes, Taylor. Cool. 
That's good to know. I, I didn't know we would still get those articles. Oh, we're still nice going to get them. They're, we'll, never, they're never going to die. Lovely. So we've talked about U.S. men's national team players. We can continue to talk about them or anybody else you want. But there's been lots of reports about foreign scouts watching this competition, uh, sort of watching specific players or specific teams. Which players do you think are most likely to move or which ones do you think have impressed the most for whatever reason in this competition? Most likely to move... We'll start there. I don't think Aronson has impressed a lot in this competition. He's done the things that he does well, very well, and shown his weaknesses. We've, we've covered that. But he's, I mean, Taylor Tolman's reported. I think Tom Bogert for MLSsoccer.com has reported it. It's, it's been talked about. He's getting interest. There are scouts watching these games. It's going to happen. That's not me with inside information. That's me reading the tea leaves that have been printed for us by other, other media people. So Aronson, not necessarily based off of this tournament, but based off of reputation and his, his skill set that we've seen for a while. That's one guy. And then two LAFC guys for me. Diego Rossi, seven goals in this tournament. Seven goals. That's a lot of goals. Um, and then Eduard Atuesta. As at number six, Rossi playing on the wing, moving centrally sometimes, Atuesta back in midfield a little bit more. A key cog in their press, really important to them in possession to spray the ball side to side. Atuesta is, is so good. He can move and play Champions League right now in Europe. And Rossi, the same is true for him. Rossi can play on the left side. He can play on the right side. He can play as a number nine, as a second forward. He can do whatever you want him to do in the attack. Both of those guys likely are going to be gone sooner rather than later from LAFC just because they're too good not to. I just want to clarify, that wasn't hyperbole, right? Do you, you really think that he could start for a Champions League team right now? Yes, definitely. I mean, it needs to All be right. the right style. Um, it can't be like he wouldn't work well for Atletico Madrid in in a, a low four four two block trying to transition forward. Fair. But for a team that plays with the ball and plays like LAFC do, yes, one hundred percent, yes. All right. Um, then my final question for you. Um, I think I have an answer. I think I can guess your answer. We'll see. Uh, but is there a manager that you think, or managers, uh, that you think have done a particularly good job in this competition, not just in terms of winning or getting big results, but like uh, in terms of managing the minutes, in rotating the best, in adjusting as needed to what the opposition is doing? Uh, is there a coach or coaches who you think have done a particularly stellar job? I so don't want to say this, but I've got two, Taylor. I'm so sorry. Um, number one, Matias Almeida. He's used all 20 of his subs so far through four games for the Earthquakes. He has he has introduced a mass influx of attacking subs in a lot of these games. There was a moment against the Vancouver Whitecaps where it was around the 60th minute, and he brings in four guys. He brings in Danny Houston, who's a forward, Fierro, who's a forward, Wondolowski, who's a forward, and Shea Salinas, who's a, a winger or a very, very attacking-minded fullback. He brings all four of those guys on at the same time, and that batch of subs changes the game for, for the Earthquakes and comes back from a multi-goal deficit against the Whitecaps to win that game 4-3. to three. That's one guy. I, I love Matias Almeida. He's, he's such a fun character as that, that manager, and he's embodied the why-not approach of this tournament so well. The other guy, Yapstam, changed things after that loss. I talked about it already. He changed their defensive structure. He changed how the team plays. He changed their tactics. And he, he improved things exponentially. He changed, and it worked, and that deserves credit as well. All right, and my final question for you then, Joe. I was wrong, by the way. I assumed it would be Bradley, so I'm happy to oh, well, be there, wrong. Yeah, Bob Bradley is a good soccer coach, um, by yeah, the way, just, just so we got that on the record. <laughs> we, we need that audio quote just in case. We'll, we'll pull that and set it aside. <laughs> um, for you, Joe, is it nice 
to not have to host? Are you, do you enjoy just having questions lobbed at you, or is that sometimes more stressful than like sort of knowing the question that you're about to ask? No, it's it's nice to be on the other side of things. Hosting is hard, Taylor, and I have it much is. more respect for for what you and Daryl do. I already had respect for that. Mostly Daryl, your ability, your ability, <laughs> and Daryl's ability to conduct interviews and transition the conversation in a flowing way that makes sense and is is nice and entertaining to listen to is so impressive. And I hope. Over these, whatever, 20 episodes we've done so far and however many more we have left, I hope that I've gotten at least a little bit closer to that because it's, it's so good what you guys do. Comedy principles dictate that I should have just been awkward and bundled that transition, uh, but I am so uncomfortable with awkward silences that I could <laughs> not do that. Uh, so instead, having said that, Joe, I would like to say thank you for all that you have done. Uh, thank you for coming on the show today. You are always lovely to have on. And I will say this. You make me consciously aware. I'm saying this at the end of the episode as opposed to the beginning. Consciously aware of how many times I might say um because you do not. I try so hard. I've got other ticks, Taylor. Believe me, I've got other ticks. Okay. I w- I'm now going to listen to your episodes specifically for that and then call you out and put them in the show notes probably <laughs> as well. Why not? Perfect. Let's bring on, bring on the constructive criticism. Um, and I should ask then, <laughs> the con- yes, I appreciate that you refer to that as constructive criticism. Uh, one final thing. What is your schedule for the, for the remainder of the competition? What have you guys got coming up on MLS Assist? So on MLS Assist, Jordan Angeli and I will have review shows analyzing all the rest of the games. So the, the four quarterfinal games, the two semifinal games, and the final. So that's seven more review shows. And then we'll have, we're planning two preview shows, one of the semifinal round and one of the final. So that's nine more shows total we're going to have out covering the rest of this MLS back tournament. Wow. All right. And then, and then sleep? And then sleep, yes. Okay. After August 11th, the night after um, that final ends will will be a lot of sleep yes I, I, I will warn you now it, it will be a weird period of like daryl and i have experienced this we, we texted about it the day after i think it was the women's world cup last year and certainly the 2018 world cup before that that like you feel this sense of like i need to be doing something i'm supposed to be recording or watching games it, it takes a minute to not feel like you're supposed to be doing something all the time when you're sort of putting out the content you all are so i look forward to you all navigating that one but for now i just look forward to your continuing coverage and i appreciate you coming on the show once again joe absolutely taylor i'm less looking forward to that debilitating sense of emptiness and purposelessness that you just (laughs) described but i always love coming on the show thank you for having me my friend 